Hey, welcome back to the show. Uh, today I have a, believe it or not, a returning guest on the podcast today, James Anderson, content director at sdbullion.com. Uh, it has been a, a long time since I've had James on the show. And in fact, I was, you know, just listening to uh, the, the interview I did with him back in uh, the second half of 2018. And we were actually talking uh, silver barely being above $14 an ounce back then, believe it or not. And uh, well, we're, we're, we're almost double that. We were at double that until just the past uh, past week or so um, in, in terms of, of the price of silver today. So it's been a while, but I'd like to welcome you back, James. And I appreciate you coming on for the show today. Well, I'm happy to be on the Silver Fortune channel again. And it's always nice to speak with you. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, jumping right into things, um, you know, I, I we, we can forego the introduction because I think most of the people in the silver space are, are familiar with you and your work at SD Bullion. Most of the people over on Wall Street Silver are, are familiar with you as well. You know, getting right into things. One thing that, that I wanted to to start off with is is talking about the recent price action in silver. You know, uh, May was a was a, um, a fairly good month. Uh, overall, but but there hasn't been a whole lot of of really exciting moves to the upside um, in, in silver um, for a, for a few months now, uh, and and in, in just the past week, kind of on the the uh, starting kind of Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of last week, we saw a pretty significant pullback in the price of silver. Currently sitting um, under twenty six dollars an ounce, pretty significant pullback in gold as well. And of course, a lot of that is related to the to the Fed meeting last week. I wanted your thoughts on that, um, as well as you know, Fed policy and and how that relates to to metals prices going forward. Sure. Well, the first thing I would say is the spot price. You know, it's been boring of late. I know that for sure. Um, it's almost I, when when August comes around this year, it'll be one year if we're still within this trading range between 30 and 25, 24, roughly spot. Um, but it's technically a good thing because what you're doing here technically is you're building a base for a launching pad to go higher eventually. And the bigger the base, the bigger the move. So, you know, if this goes on sideways for a lot for, for much longer, it just helps eventually for the for the you know the higher move ahead. And I, you know, I just think what we've done in terms of Federal Reserve policy, in terms of expanding the monetary base, um, you know, the, the actual fiat M0 monetary base is essentially doubled. Um, since the pandemic came about. And if you look at the M1 definition, they changed it. M1 definition now uh, also has uh, savings accounts in it. And so it's almost the exact same as the M2 um, count. So M1's like 19 trillion, M2's 20. Um, the monetary base is over 6 trillion. And I don't see any any reason why it's gonna be stopping in the years coming. I, I think that we're walking into probably another financial crisis at some point this decade. Uh, where you're going to have a lot of institutions fail, I think, or get bailed out or get consolidated or bailed in or what have you. But this is not over. You know, the storm is still ahead, I think. And, you know, the pandemic was the precursor, but I still think there's a bigger thing probably coming in terms of the financial reset of the structure in the system. So, um, you know, it's a long-winded answer, but it, the, the bottom line is that silver is in good stead. I think it's 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 fine. It, it, the way it's traded in you know last few days, obviously it was down a few dollars. Um, I thought the move in gold was more was more shocking uh, psychologically for people from, you know, it was trading over 1900 and back down to 1775 roughly. So that was a pretty big move when you move $100 that quickly. Uh, all on a bunch of nonsense. I mean, the the, the Federal Reserve came out and, and what they say, they said, you know, nothing's changed and we may raise interest rates in 2023, you know, maybe look at our dot plot. Yeah, we might do that. 
mean, it's just, it's insanity. And, and then the entire time they're talking about this inflation's transitory. Um, you know, the, the, the jury's still out on that, but I think ultimately most people who go to the grocery stores and such know that uh, prices have been rising for a lot longer than they've been telling the truth about. Um, if you use the old 1980 way to measure CPI, uh, you know, we've been rudg- running around double digits for decades, it seems. And uh, they've been telling us that there's no inflation. So it it's basically what the capital class, the elite class is going to tell you because they're the ones winning. They're the ones getting uh, handsomely rich while everybody else is uh, you know, sitting there listening to a bunch of lies, basically. Yeah, I, I could uh, direct all my listeners here over to shadowstats.com run by a guy by the name of John Williams. And, and that's a lot of the data that that James is is referencing here on inflation. And, and, and certainly I've referenced it countless times in the past, you know, using a, when you look at inflation, using uh, the, the methodology that the BLS has used in the past, you, like James said, um, you're, you're a, a high single digit or low double digit inflation dating back for, for a decade plus. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, this inflation, this rise in inflation uh, just in the past maybe six months is real, but, but it's only in addition to what we've seen in the past, uh, past decade plus. Uh, so, so talking about the federal reserve, uh, they, they're signaling, they, you're right in that they changed very little. I mean, they, they tweaked one of their interest rates, but not even their, their federal or their fed funds rate. Um, and, and it wasn't a really meaningful change, like five basis points. Uh, but otherwise, they um, they basically, like you said, uh, brought forward potentially talked about bringing forward some some hikes, some some rate hikes into 2023. You know, three year, uh, two years into the future, and and some have have wondered if if the Fed is slowly kind of turning this this ship that is you know Fed monetary policy towards a towards a kind of a taper. Um, a taper of their of their uh, quantitative easing, and and eventually you know transitioning to to a, a tightening, even though you know tapering in and of itself is tightening. So I wanted your thoughts on that because we've seen this in the past, and it, and we don't have to go all the way back to uh, you know uh, pre um, pre financial crisis. You know we had a very short tightening cycle relatively recently, you know, starting, uh, we can say obviously ending in, in 2020. Some would argue that the Titan cycle ended in, in 2019, though, um, prematurely, you know, are we kind of heading for that same course in terms of Fed policy? Yeah, I mean, it's the, it was 2018 when they did that tightening cycle and the stock market threw a tantrum and Jerome Powell did this famous pivot where he, you know, started cutting rates again and we walked our way into the pandemic. Um, the second point, there's another private um, aggregator of inflation data called the Chapwood Index. And if you look at the top 50 city centers, the last five years running average has been about 10% per year inflation. So the whole time, the Federal Reserve has been telling us last five years that we've probably been running, you know, 1% inflation or whatever, you know, and they've been trying to get to 2% and now they've overshot. So I think what they're doing is they're lying. You know, that's what that's what you get paid to do as a central banker is to tell people things that aren't true and just do it point blank and stare and, and say, you know, this is what I, you know, this is what the policy is and, and to say things that are in the interest of the capital class, but not in the interest of the producers, uh, the people that produce things, the people that work for a living on, uh, you know, average white collar, blue collar jobs day to day. And so I think we're just in, we're caught in a, in a matrix of uh, a whole bunch of mistruths and we have to kind of look and see what they're doing in terms of action more so than the words. And the actions are, uh, we have 30% more Fiat Federal Reserve notes now than we did before the pandemic. And uh, that's going to end up 
causing inflation. And it depends on where you want to see the inflation. We've seen a lot of inflation in virtually every asset class for the last few years, talking about stock market. Now the real estate market is percolating. Uh, used car sales, lumber, all these various commodities besides gold and silver, because the derivative matrix, the way it's set up, uh, can keep it suppressed for a while. Haven't risen as much, but they are percolating. And I do believe ultimately they're going to have their time in the sun, in the sunshine. It's, it's a matter, I think, of the powers that be, you know, they want to move to a new system. They want to move to a system where you have fiat central bank digital currencies, uh, which with every sovereign, essentially, there's like 100 countries already working on this. And so they can have autonomy within their country in terms of control over their their currency creation and the way that they hand out, you know, UBI or, uh, you know, in some type of little stipends to their citizens. So there won't be riots in the streets if there is food inflation in terms of prices and people can't eat. They need to have something to get them stipends so they can get some food. And then they're probably moving toward a new multilateral uh, system in terms of the way that sovereign countries trade within one another. And it's not going to be dollar, you know, dollar dominant like it's been for the last you know 50 odd years. It will be probably moving to the SDR and the MSDR um, bond system. So there's a lot of changes afoot that are probably coming down the pike in the next five, 10 years. And it's going to be wholesale changes in terms of the way the financial industry even operates and, and functions. So in the, in the meantime, they're going to tell us all types of mistruths and misdirect everybody into thinking and, and listening to these things like transitory inflation and stuff like that. It'll all fall. All the scales will fall from people's eyes when the prices of everything starts going up. Eventually, I think what they ultimately want is to nominally keep their bubbles going in the stock market and the nominal prices of real estate to stay somewhat high. But also what you'll end up seeing is the value of real things, commodities and precious metals rise as well. And ultimately, those that have real things are probably going to get gain in purchasing power versus those that are still sitting in the, in the bubbles that are, are the stock market, that are the real estate market at the moment. You know, kind of two thoughts on on that. You know, first of all, I've I've long held the I've long kind of said myself that that in terms of inflation and in terms of the markets and the economy, uh, that the Fed, you know, long term, I think they're going to find themselves more than willing to to sacrifice the, the dollar uh, through through debasement and and even in terms of exchange rate. Uh, in order to to do their best to uh, prop up markets, whether that's real estate or or uh, equities, uh, even bond markets to some extent, though that becomes incredibly difficult when when you have a falling currency, um, as well as to to kind of keep the I don't even want to say keep the economy going, but but keep the current uh, credit cycle from from really imploding upon itself. And of course, the the problem with that is is once you lose. The, the stable currency and inflate it away uh, uh, too much. And then you lose the other, the other aspects of, of that goal in the first place. You know, the, the other thing you're talking there, and I tend to agree, you're bringing up SDRs, MSDRs, and, and sort of a new system. There's a lot out there that, that, you know, have, have talked about cryptocurrencies and, 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 and uh, you know, a sovereign or, or a, a central bank type of cryptocurrency. And I, and I think, you know, those can be integrated together with what you're talking about, whether it's UBI, uh, siphons, um, SDR. I, I, I think certainly you can, you can digitalize that to a greater extent than, let's say, that the SDR system is right now. Uh, what, what's interesting to me I appreciate consistency in in a you know a, a market commentator, and, and again, I was listening to the to our interview from from late 2018, 
And, and it was a very similar thing that you had brought up that next 10 years, we're looking at a new system that the, that the petrodollar system that we've been on for, for uh, almost 50 years now has, uh, is, is coming to an end and that we're, we're going to find uh, that a new system is already in the works. And, and I think what's crazy is that in the time span since then, almost three years, I think we've seen an incredible kind of advancement in that direction. Uh, not to say that necessarily COVID, some would disagree, but but that COVID was was planned by central bankers in order to to kind of uh, quicken that. But but I think it has quickened the pace towards this new system. Uh, is that yeah. something you'd kind of agree with? Oh, totally. I mean, this is this has sped up the timetable by years. Uh, the speed at which things have changed so much and. You know, now the amount of currency that's been handed out in terms of, you know, UBI type stipends over this pandemic has increased and the percentage of people who are getting currency has increased. And, you know, ultimately, those people in the end are eventually going to be spending that currency. And the question is, you know, will there will there be a lot of velocity and turnover in currency? Because that's what every inflationista thinks that you need. But you could also just have a flat out loss in confidence and where you get a situation where a certain swath of the population just spends their currency as soon as they get it, their salary, and they buy real things. And so if you get a spillover of people doing that, you know, in a large amount of, uh, enough, you will have commodities skyrocket very quickly. And, uh, you know, I ultimately think that's where this goes. I think we're going to get to a threshold where a certain popu- certain percentage of the population will, will be buying real things as quickly as possible. And that just further exacerbates the devaluation of the currency ultimately. And if you have velocity turn up with the amount of currency that's in the system, it could get really ugly real quick. You know, in the last 10 years, whether we're looking at the stock market, uh, other assets, even precious metals, but but maybe most of all cryptocurrencies, uh, one term that has, has been coined in the last decade, um, or at least uh, made into its own acronym is, is FOMO, fear of missing out. It's always been kind of market um, phenomenon, but this idea that that you don't want to miss out on the next move, and and there's also kind of remorse when when you didn't buy into something at a lower price, and you don't want to miss out on the next move. You know, I think of cryptocurrencies. I think of Bitcoin. I remember looking at Bitcoin in the summer of 2013, and ultimately opting not to buy it. Um, and and certainly you can see the print now, now. I personally, I know myself. I know I probably would have sold at the end of 2013. I wouldn't still be holding on to it into 2020 or 2021. Um, but but the point of what I'm saying is that th- there's that same dynamic in the silver market, the gold market, the stock market of of looking at this asset and saying, wow, I wish I had bought it a year or three or five years ago and would have written it out and, and, and been a part of that, you know, 100 percent, 200 percent, you know, 5000 percent gains, whatever asset we're talking about. The reason I bring this up is because I, I think this is a similar dynamic as to what we'll see in the currencies, you know, and obviously it's going to be the, the value of the currency is going to operate inverse to commodities. Um, but but I think we'll have this situation where, where you look at your bank account and you'll look at some pile of cash or, or maybe something similar to that with saying bonds or, or CDs or something along those lines. And you'll have this remorse that, well, I wish I had spent that on, on anything, real estate stocks, precious metals, mm-hmm. commodities, something real, rather than have held on to it over the past year, because I think a lot of people realize that they that they missed out on you know, maybe one of the last opportunities they had to kind of get out of the current fiat system. And I don't know if it'll be as extreme as the move in Bitcoin in terms of, of the dollar uh, depreciating, mm-hmm. or or maybe similar to what we've seen in silver in the last uh, 
two years. It's hard to say, but I imagine a similar dynamic dynamic playing out. Seems like what you're describing is FOLO, fear of losing out, where you yeah. you you will essentially lose out if you don't turn that currency into something tangible and real, and you know that has more of a precious value than just simply something that it can be keystroked into existence. So, uh, yeah, I do I do think that that will be that will be taking over what is right now the most speculative, crazy financial market this world has ever seen. We've never uh, lived through anything like this in terms of, um, you know, in terms of cryptocurrencies and, and the way that they've multiplied in values. And the only thing I can think of that would be, that would be somewhat uh, comparable to say, you know, how Bitcoin went from nine cents to over 60 grand would be, you know, Picasso turning a piece of paper into a multi hundred million dollar piece of art later in his, you know, after he dies and gets sold at auction. I mean, that to, to turn something that's worth so little into so much. Um, yeah, of course, that's going to drive people to feel like they're missing out and like they've lost in, t- in terms of gains, et cetera. But ultimately, I think what what you see if you look at history is you look at like, I'm not saying we're going to hyperinflation, but it, there are scenarios in history like the Weimar Republic before the Great Depression hit and, and, and after the Weimar Republic, you know, went, came and went. But, there was still speculative mania going on. So speculative manias happen before hyperinflations a lot of times, and they even follow it after when there's new currency resets. Uh, I mean, look, ultimately, the biggest bugaboo of the entire system is the fact that you have over 150 trillion to 200 trillion in unfunded liabilities the United States government uh, has. And there's no way we're gonna pay that off with the GDP of the size that we have. I mean, the only way you can pay that off is maybe you invent a time machine and go back and do it right, <laughs> or you um, ultimately devalue the currency, or you default, or you do a mix of them all. And I, my hunch is you're going to see a mix of them all, where you're going to have to default on a bunch of promises you didn't intend on keeping and you never save for. And you're also going to, you know, the easiest way out is to devalue the currency further so you can nominally meet those promises, even though by nominally meeting those promises and devalued currencies, that means in real terms, you won't get what you thought you'd get. And, and then you, yeah, look at, you look at private pensions and stuff like that. I mean, I, you know, that's why the Federal Reserve has to keep the stock market propped because the baby boomers have so much of their net, you know, their net assets still in stocks and in bonds, and they have to keep those markets propped. And, and that's why I think ultimately that's what their game is. Keep it propped and let it devalue in real terms versus real things. It's just a question of maintaining control. I don't, the Federal Reserve does not want to see, you know, gold gap up $1,000, $1,500 in a short time frame. Could you imagine what Jerome Powell would have to answer in terms of questions if that happened, right? Um, so it's, it's, it's one of those things that at some point they probably will because they'll have their next system ready in case things really get out of control. But I don't think we're there yet. I think they're still buying time. And that's essentially what we saw last week when they're coming out with these statements of nothing. And, and all of a sudden you see gold get hammered by like 125 bucks. Uh, they're still in control in terms of the derivative markets. You know, they still have actors in the derivative markets that are acting on their behalf. And commercial banks love it because they make nice, nice bonuses quarterly by doing this. I mean, they are... They are always there in the commodity markets, ready to take the short side and to take, you know, those waterfall declines as their quarterly bonuses. And it and it serves the interest of the central banks and the governments in doing that. It gives those fiat currencies and the systems that they thrive off uh, credibility and it keeps everything sound and in place and keeps everyone thinking, you know, that this game of musical chairs is not going to end. But, you know, I think ultimately you have 100 trillion more in unfunded liabilities that are kind of come due this decade into the next, the easiest way out is going to be to value the currency.
Yeah, I mean, you brought up pensions, you bring up uh, uh, local uh, state governments. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, th- those those are going to require, you know, uh, massive uh, in the trillions of dollars worth of, of bailout. Um, and that, I mean, I look even the little things, you know, there's a there's a article over on, I think, Zero Hedge today talking about California um, um, paying the bill for all of basically unpaid rent in the past uh year plus that they've had basically a moratorium on, on evictions, uh, something like $5 billion worth, which, which is a, a, a drop in the ocean in the whole scheme of things. But but it's just another example of, of um, debt accumulation. I mean, the, the amount of debt accumulation we've had in the past year is is insane. And, and of course, you know, like at MMT, um, um, theorists would say that this is just a shift of debt from the private or the corporate sector to, to the, uh, to the you know, public sector, to the government. But but I haven't. I don't think we've lived through a time period in which so much debt has been accumulated with so little, you know, like productivity and actual value created. I mean, the, yeah. with with our employment, the level that it's been, and 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 the relatively low amount of productivity because of COVID, mm-hmm. I, we've never lived through a time period like this. Yeah, um, I mean, corporate debt levels are at all time highs, and you know that that. So look at your stock market right now and think about that for the next ten years. How do you think they're going to get out of that? Uh, the best way they're going to get out of that is either defaulting on some of the promises they made to their employees and or, uh, you know, the currency devaluing and them having a moat in their markets. And that's a big reason why you see such huge consolidations in corporate options in the United States. You know, you only have so many cell phone plans. You only have so many options when it comes to a lot of the products you get and the prices you get, honestly and frankly, are terrible. Um, you know, you get a lot better prices when you're not living in the United States versus when you live in the United States. It's uh it's uh, abhorrent in terms of what you have to pay in utility costs if you own a home. Like, you know, for instance, what's the cable bill? What's the internet bill? What's the gas bill? What's the electric bill? I mean, you're, you're, it's, it's way overpriced. It's, it shouldn't be as expensive as it is, but the system is so sickly that everyone is basically racketeering off one another. So, so shifting gears here, you know, we, we could talk all day about the economy and the Fed and inflation. I'd love to, but but I know that a lot of my listeners are here for for silver and precious sure. metals, too. and and I wanted to talk about that as well. You know, twenty twenty uh, was was quite a year for precious metals in terms of demand, and twenty twenty one, especially like quarter one, what um, was a very strong year for demand. Quarter two is uh, looking to be a pretty strong year or a strong quarter as well. Um, especially specifically silver, you know, between PSLV uh, and and just retail demand in general, you know, oftentimes coins, bars, rounds, uh, it's been it's been very high, and and certainly at SD bullion, you've seen that as well. I wanted your thoughts. You know, how sustainable is this pace? Uh, kind of, you know, maybe we could set a timeline, you know, through the end of the year, through twenty twenty one. So through twenty twenty one, unless something, you know outsize comes about. I mean, unless like we talked pre-interview about the the bullies of the financial market showing up, um, I think retail is doing fine. It's growing. It's the words getting out. The Wall Street silver movement's really growing. I'm impressed every day by what I see coming out of that forum and the amount of energy and excitement that they have. Uh, that kind of stuff, it, um, it tends to not just fizzle out. It tends to keep growing until there's a, an exponential phase or a manic phase. 
And it's very similar to how Wall Street bets came about, you know, slowly but surely. And then it moved into a manic phase earlier on this year. And then all of a sudden they tenfolded in the amount of members on Reddit that are on their forum. So uh, right now, I think Wall Street Silver's at 120,000. But, you know, if you talk to me next year, I'd be surprised if it was less than a quarter million uh, at this time next year. I would imagine probably double by this time next year. And in terms of, you know, how much firepower is out there, I mean, think about we have bubbles in virtually every asset class outside of commodities and precious metals have been, I would argue, suppressed for a long time. And, you know, they, they obviously jumped out and, and did their thing in the late seventies and early eighties. Um, but the last time before that, that gold did any revaluing was 1933, really uh, 1934 co confiscation and silver has been suppressed arguably other than that Hunt Brothers episode, um, it's been more or less suppressed for a century plus, a century and a half almost, ever since you know the demonetization of silver, really. So, uh, you know, ultimately, there's a lot of fiat currency firepower out there, and if it starts directing itself in in larger waves at the precious metals complex, there's no way they'll be able to hold back. Um, you know, the suppression that's going on in the derivative markets, and ultimately, I think that's where we go. I think high net worth investors. There's just so much, so many people, so many estates in the United States. There's over 90,000 estates on paper that you can verify that have over 50 million uh, fiat Fed notes in asset value. Okay, that's you know that counts all the billionaires and the people who have 50 million or more in their estates. And those people at some point, you know, they probably only have, if you looked at them, maybe one to two percent allocation to precious metals at most on average. Uh, but they're, if they start moving toward five or 10 percent, which ultimately I think happens, I think the worm turns. Uh, at some point, and 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 financial advisors uh, explain the importance of having an allocation to bullion in the coming five, ten years. And once you start seeing that, those people are going to start moving. I think the smart ones will start moving not from not to the derivatives like GLD or SLV or any of those, but they'll be moving to bullion allocations and holding it in you know in segregated storage deposits like Loomis and Brinks and Malka Amat and places like that. So that's going to put huge pressure on the system in terms of, you know, the the fractional reserve way that it operates all the way till now. It's already happening. You can see that comics is all of a sudden becoming in the last few years is becoming more of a uh, a lot of times it's been, been there's been a lot of demand, a lot of deliveries. And so I do think high net worth investors are doing allocations. Family offices are making allocations, but I think they're going to come in much, much bigger droves, much bigger waves in the coming years. And it's going to put huge pressure on the upside um, prices for silver and gold. I think ultimately that's what's going to happen. You just cannot, you cannot explode the fiat currency system as much as we had and have human humanity forget the fact that precious metals are the best money versus these things that they're creating willy nilly out of thin air. So I was going to ask you that, you know, the question, what runs out first, the supply of, of silver and gold or, or, you know, capital available to investors. I think you kind of answered that question, but one thing you've been talking about lately is, uh, you know, a recent uh, statement kind of made by, by Paul Tudor Jones, um, billionaire uh, hedge fund guy, uh, specifically on, on the masses investors, um, such as in Wall Street Silver, Wall Street Bets, um, getting on board with commodities and the commodities trade. Could you kind of talk about that and, and why that's significant to you? Yeah, sure. So last week, he early last week, Paul Tudor Jones is a billionaire speculator um, and a guy who's just an astute trader. He was on CNBC and he started throwing out 
you know, more or less warnings in his interview about, you know, what happens in the commodity complex, because there's just so much, there's so little finite supply of commodities and especially precious metals. Um, what happens if the Reddit crowd starts really going heavy into commodities? You know, he asked that in, in, a, in a rhetorical way as more of a shock value question. And then he follows it up by saying, and then what happens if the bullies in the financial market get on trade, you know, like like the retail market did in the 70s. And, and the retail market was heavily involved in precious metals and commodities in the 70s. And there was a lot of brokers who, who traded, uh, you know, for, for retail customers in those derivative markets. And there's a lot of people who made fortunes in those derivative markets. And what he's alluding to is the fact that the bullies that he's saying, the long bullies that could go long in the commodity markets like himself and others, um, what happens if they're doing it you know, in, in larger allocations than they currently are? I mean, he, he said in the interview that right now, three quarters of a percent of assets under management are you know, delineated to commodities of 88 trillion in assets under management. So that's only 750 billion. He, he said in 2011, it was up to 1.25 billion. Okay. So, so what happens if we move up, you know, half trillion in commodity markets, they're going to move up quickly in price. And, and that's only in the 2011 uh, allocations. What happens if we move up to higher allocations than that? He basically said, you, you could have the commodity complex double or triple in price in no time. And that's, that's, I think, what, what, we, what we will eventually see. And in that time, precious metals are going to outperform every commodity because what you are essentially doing in that time is people start worrying about the follow effect, the fear of losing out, the purchasing power of their currency losing out to real things. And so they're going to come in heavy, I think. And you know, ultimately, are we going to have a shortage? Are we going to have, yes, we're going to have a shortage. There's going to be very, very difficult uh, premiums to pay if you want physical bullion delivered in a reasonable amount of time to you. And that, you know, what you've seen thus far in silver and gold, I think is just a precursor to what you'll see eventually. You know, there'll be a time where the spot price might say something, but to get actual gold bullion in size or silver bullion in size, you're going to have to pay through the eye to get it. You know, you, you brought up, you know, the allocation of, of investments towards precious metals. And, and I want to point out, you know, you, you brought it up there, specifically talking about uh, Paul Tudor Jones, and you also brought it up before uh, in, in regards to the the high wealth, you know, estates and households in the United States. And, and I want to point out that that generally speaking, those allocations are are made with with not a whole lot of knowledge by the by by the by the holder of that wealth. And what I mean by that is not it's not that it's without their withheld from them or something like that, mm-hmm. but that it's just kind of a standard, you know, added as part of a standard, you know basket of assets that they're kind of putting their wealth into to invest, to preserve, whatever. But, but generally it's, it's done because for whatever reason, well, for good reason, but, but for whatever reason, a lot of uh, asset managers and, and whatnot, and a lot of funds have sort of this obligatory, you know, 2% into to gold, 1% into gold. Yeah, they, uh, they, they have a short time frame in terms of the time horizon of financial history. And time horizon of financial history tells you that you should <laughs> that you should always have an allocation to gold, always. And if you, especially if you live under a fiat currency system, you should definitely have an allocation to bullion. And and these officers that you're talking about, they're they're still in this 60-40 paradigm where 60% into bonds, 40% into stocks. You know, you have risk, and then you also have the uh, the safe haven of the bonds. And and that works until the currency starts getting ruined. And if the currency starts getting ruined, stocks, Paul Tudor Jones said it in that CNBC interview, he said, you know, in the 70s, essentially alluded to the fact that stocks underperformed uh, by 85%. So, you know, you'll still retain most of your purchasing power, but you'll lose in real terms. 
And if you look at the 1970s stock market, that's exactly what happened. It may have gone up nominally by a few percentage, but it, it, in terms of real value, what it could purchase you in the real world and goods and services, it, it lost tremendously to like commodities, to gold and silver, to oil, to, you know, you name the commodity, they all went up in the 70s. They, many of them did many fold up. Um, silver went up 30 fold, 38 fold, gold went up 24 fold from, you know, 70 to 80. So, um, you know, whether or not we see that repeating, um, I think it's possible you could you could have a situation where it does that. But ultimately, if we run through something like that, you're probably going to have to be getting a new currency, and a new system. And so we may have to move to a new a new type of uh, digital um, currency unit. Um, and so, you know, look, ultimately, I just think that I just think that he's right, that the commodity market, the finite supply of real things is very thin. And if uh, the high net worth investor class and the, the bullies of the financial market, eat like like he describes, if they come in, pretty long as commodities, you could have them double, triple really quickly. And gold and silver could probably do better than that, I would think, in coming years is if we have a repeat something similar to the 70s. Well, and I mean, for 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 decades now, uh, precious metals investors have been fighting against the bully investors, um, maybe may a, a different different specific yeah, different set. New- the short yeah, side, uh, the short, the short side commercial bank bullies. Exactly, exactly, and and I think we need to understand that it can work in both directions. Yep. You know, I really, you know, let's say you have a high net worth individual that comes in and, and buys a massive amount of physical. Um, more likely, a lot of these firms will be, you know, as you said, be be working the derivative markets. But but you know, for a long time now, and myself and many others have wondered, you know, this the silver shortage is on the horizon. You know, at one point do. At what point does a does do large, let's say, large industrial manufacturers, uh, Apple, Tesla, Samsung, whatever, going into the silver market and preemptively, um, uh, you know, front run any sort of yeah. shortage or up um, to secure their supply? And and I certainly think think that that's a, a, a high. There's a high probability of that happening in the future. But at what point do we have to ask ourselves? Uh, maybe not. It's maybe it's not. You know, the Apple, the Samsung, the Google, whatever. Maybe it's the the high wealth investors that we need to be looking for, and, and the you know the the large um, AUM funds. You know that's that's who we really need to be watching for piling onto this trade. You know we talked you know pre pre uh, interview here about uh, Wall Street bets and and sort of a fascination among you know whether it's CNBC or a lot of the financial community in the past few months of their what would appear to be their effectiveness by a bunch of small retail investors pile into a trade like AMC or GME or what have you and, and, and really mooning the stock, send it way up. And, and we're talking about how, you know, I think, I, I think people are falsely under the assumption that it's purely these retail investors on one side of the trade and a bunch of these short hedge funds uh, that are short on the other side of the trade mm-hmm. and, and forget about the fact that there's likely a lot of institutional investors that are, that are using probably advanced um, advanced uh, analytical software, or mm-hmm. even just perusing the forum mm-hmm. and piling into that same trade that a lot of these retail investors are are doing, and and that's exactly what you're talking about here with Paul yeah. Tudor Jones, except right. with precious or with commodities. Exactly. So Wall Street bets has basically been cover for a lot of the long bully hedge funds to go in and to take advantage of the shorts while using the retail coverage trade, right? I mean, and that's that's what Paul Tudor Jones was describing essentially. It was that. He didn't say Wall Street Silver out loud, but he said the Reddit crowd. And Wall Street Silver is growing. It's not there, not not at the numbers it needs to be in order to, you know, have full cover for these long bullies to come in into the commodity markets, but it's getting there. And so, you know, the time frame may not be 
tomorrow, but it, 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 it's definitely coming. I think the trend is on and it's set and it's rolling. And, and I think that's the point is that when it happens, you know, silver in, in general need, there needs to be a scapegoat when silver goes crazy. It's like the, when the commodity markets went crazy in the seventies, they used the hunt brothers as a scapegoat. And if you do any, any research in the hunt brothers, you'll realize that they didn't, they didn't have that big of a push in terms of them individually in silver. It was a collective push of, of an entire movement of people going into monetary metals because they were afraid of the fiat currency. It was only 10 years old and they, they were thinking it was going down in flames. Uh, this time, you know, we can't jack up interest rates. Our, our debt is way too large. And so you're not going to have Paul Volcker come in and, and jack up federal funds rates at near 20, 20%. It just can't happen. Everything would fall apart in the economy if we did that. So, you know, what we're going to have here is we're going to have negative nominal rates, real rates uh, for for the long time, probably for the next decade or two until the system structurally resets and we move into a new paradigm. But, in, you know, from here to there, I, I think there are a lot of high net worth investors who will get ahead of this and who will see what's coming and they'll get ahead of it. And that will be, I think what you're saying is that the higher net worth investors will be the ones that move the market more so than the producers running ahead. And to be honest, the producers would just go to the miners and the refiners and buy directly from them. They wouldn't even use the comics, I don't think. It's so much trouble pulling metal off the comics. So, you know, you, you'll probably see a combination of both, but it'll be the high net worth investors that really pull the bullion, I would think. So you brought up the comics there, and and this is a question I feel like I've asked a lot of people over the years. But uh, with one thing that you've noted, and a lot of people have noted recently, is sort of the inverse relationship between the inventory build uh, of of the PSLV, you know, the, the exchange traded you know product that's that's backed by silver, um, and the inverse relationship relationship between that and COMEX, uh, you know, registered uh, silver deposits, uh, which have, have gone down pretty sharply thus far in, in 2021. Um, so so let's say we continue on this path and, and let's say, you know, interest continues to build, let's say high wealth individuals continue to take delivery from COMEX and, and more flows into PSLV and, and similar funds or, or privately, you know, privately held you know, vaults and whatnot. You know, what's the you know, what's the the tipping point for the comics in which, you know, the the derivative game, the paper game just no longer works in terms of uh, function in the first place or, or at least in terms of, of being a viable way of suppressing the price of silver? So the tipping point, I think, to get over 30s, you need the bully longs in the derivative markets to start heavily buying long and, and overwhelming the short funds, short commercial banks. And that could happen. I think it'll happen by the end of this year. I would I would be very surprised without some deflationary bank collapse or some issue in the financial system that's totally deflationary. Uh, I would be surprised if spot silver isn't 30 or $40 by the end of the year and gold probably at record highs going toward 2,500. Uh, but ultimately, you know, what sets this thing off further is those bully longs, not only going long in the derivative markets, but also going after the physical bullion for the long term. And I think as the story gets out further and, and more asset managers understand the circumstances and the debt situation and the unfunded liability situation, they're going to start re-educating themselves about why it makes sense to have an allocation of bullion. And they're going to be hopefully smart enough to get it you know, directly in their own segregated storage accounts outside the comics. So they'll pull it, hopefully if they know what they're doing. Um, some may leave it in there for liquidity or what have you, but I mean, ultimately the comics right now, it is the, I think the number one decider of what the day-to-day -day spot price for gold and silver is. But when you have enough people going after the physical product 
and you have enough people trading long greedily, uh, the combination of them both can make the price rise very, very quickly. And I think those two are coming. The only question is exactly when and, and how it's all going to unfold. But I mean, it's very hard for me to see a picture where in the next 10 years, uh, we get through this debt and unfunded liability crisis without dividing the currency and there being a, a full rush into monetary metals. So, so you brought up kind of thirty to forty dollars by the end of the year, and I'm not going to hold you to that. But, but the point I want to make is that that would be just a fraction of of the kind of you know, the the entirety of the move that we can expect from silver, and, and the same goes for gold. Twenty five hundred is just going to be a fraction of that. Uh, but, but it is going to be a, a bull market that's going to, like most bull markets, be be marked by pullbacks along the way. Mm-hmm. And 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 you, you also brought up uh, late seventies and and the Hunt brothers, and uh, that's infamous for for the the way the the comics and other aspects of the system were able to change the rules essentially to, to um, force them out of their position and to alleviate, you know, the kind of supply constraints in the market at that time. I wanted your thoughts, you know, moving into the next year or two, you know, what type of narratives, shenanigans, rule changes, new laws, et cetera, what, what can we expect along the way, whether it be from the CFTC, from the COMEX, from lawmakers, from CNBC uh, to, to, you know, really push the narrative that 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 precious metals are are you know just going up purely based on speculation and certainly not on the basis of inflation, fear trade, et cetera. So I think ultimately what will become more common knowledge is that when you do this to the monetary base, uh, we're going to move back to the historic precedent of a certain percentage of the of the um, U.S. gold reserves backing the monetary base outstanding. And I've I've done these price target uh, projections for SD bullion. I probably do them every other quarter because they've been exploding the monetary base so much. But I, I, I believe that the 40% threshold on the M0 fiat monetary base is, is, is where we're destined towards. And that occurred in 1933, 1934. It occurred in 1980. I, I could argue uh, I, the data is because they were using different currencies at the time. But after the Civil War, there was a situation where gold went up from $20.67 to like 180 bucks in um in 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 a story that's it's confounded in conspiracy and all, all, a whole bunch of uh, a whole bunch of stories as to why that happened but ultimately it was because people didn't trust the fiat greenback that was used to finance the civil war uh so ultimately the point of this is that human beings have this innate understanding of folo like oh no the currency's not that good i need to run toward the sound money and the sound money has always been gold and silver and it's inbred into us we we know that inherently i think and and then when you get a certain percentage of the population moving toward it, it becomes a stampede and and that's what i ultimately think's coming and you know from here to there it, we're going to go through all types of stuff that i couldn't even guess you know and, and neither you know who could have guessed the pandemic was going to come about so there, there's going to be Things, you know, if you thought 2010s were weird, 2020s are going to be even stranger. I mean, I, I just think that we're headed into a time that's unprecedented in terms of things that we're going to see and craziness that we're going to get with uh, with the way technology is going and the way the system is. I mean, one thing you can look in terms of the comics, one thing that'll tell you a lot of what's going on is, um, for instance, if you in order to have a comics contract for silver or gold, you need to put up a certain percentage of, you know, dollars in order to have the ability to leverage it and to trade on it. And so, you know, you'll see them, they're called margin requirements and you'll see this when, when things are getting really hot and to the upside, 
they will raise margin requirements. And that effectively does a really good job of squeezing the longs because for the most part, the longs don't have as deep of pockets as the shorts. The shorts typically are the banks and they know where the stops are a lot of times. And they know that you know they can naked short sell a lot of things and break the stops and make it waterfall decline. And so, yeah, you're going to see the bully logs try and come in. The question is how deep are their pockets? And when the margin requirements keep going up and up and up, are they going to be able to hang in there? Are they going to have to back out and sell and, and stop loss, et cetera? So it's going to be a wild, volatile ride. There's no doubt of that. So what I try and do is keep uh, a longer term <clears throat> perspective of what they've done to the monetary system <clears throat> versus what's happened historically. And I, I mean, the gold price target right now is at like $9,000 based on historic precedent, this 40% threshold that I'm talking about. And if you just simply do a, a gold-silver ratio of 30, you know, it hit 33 in 2011. I think 2011 is an easy place to go look back at and price target of where we're going below. 33 was the low then. I think low, below 30 is before this thing peaks out is, is an easy given. And so if you have $9,000 gold, you know, divide that by 30 and you get, I think, $300 silver roughly. So, I mean, it, Ultimately, I think triple-digit silver is in the game. It's definitely in the cards in the future. It's you know a question of how silly the currency is going to get the base. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely tend to agree that like in the last twenty years, the move up that we've seen in in silver in uh, let's say let's say going back to the summer of twenty nineteen because that's really really started, especially in gold. Yeah, the move that we've seen since then with gold finally topping you know thirteen hundred, et cetera, to where it's been in the past few months. Uh, that was that was making it for last time. That was making for years of of expansion of of the monetary supply, years of of inflation, and uh, even you know even the nine thousand that you're referencing now for or, or three hundred for silver. Uh, that's still only taking into account current numbers. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 we barely remember how we covered how we've had double digit inflation. You know, if we use nineteen eighty mm-hmm. hedonics uh, without the adjustments. Uh, if, if we think about the amount of actual price inflation that's gone on, you know, it's been masked a lot by technology and increases in productivity. But the amount of inflation that's happened has not even come close to showing up in the price of precious metals. And ultimately, what I'm arguing is that it will. And when it does, it's going to be a hell of a lot higher than where it is today. It's going to be one of those things that you'll tell your grandkids about. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a. Uh... It's like you said, it's going to be marked by a lot of other really, I mean, whatever happens to the currency, whether it's a 99% or 90% or 70% debasement to the US dollar, um, any of those leads to a really bad outcome in terms of society and not just markets. Um, and, and maybe it's just going to be a footnote, you know, um, the Weimar Republic and, and their period of hyperinflation to, to most um, historians is going to be marked by the hyperinflation and the turmoil. And and the seeds that were sown for for uh, uh, World War II Germany and pre World War II Germany, um, but but that I think it's a similar thing in the United States in, in the sense that we're going to have all these political and geopolitical and societal stories that are going to be happening um, almost running right in a continuum right after you know the, the end of this whole kind of COVID chapter of our history. But what's going to be under this? There are positive. There are positive things that can come out of this. I mean, the fact that we've had to run a trade deficit for the last fifty years has basically hollowed out our economy, right? I mean, if we transition back toward a more multilateral uh, system where we're, you know, keeping a trade account that's more in line with the amount of uh, we spending we do, and and you know, what you'll end up having is is a 
is an economy that gets finally built in the United States, rebuilt in the United States, that's more sound. And, uh, you know, you'll have people on a local level that have, you know, they're not just getting stipends and they're not just getting MMT transfers and gambling and on any FOMO bet, right? You're going to have people who actually have, you know, a real future, a real economic energy. So, the, you know, the transition is going to be hard from here to there. It's going to be the second half of our life. We're going to see it, I think. Ultimately, it'll probably be for the best for the average American. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think a lot, probably including ourselves, will look back at the financial crisis or, or even 2020 and say, you know, it's a shame they didn't let things kind of just fall apart. Even, you know, I think I even saw Michael Burry talking about this today, just yesterday, the day before that those, those, you know, firms shouldn't have been bailed out. We, we would have been to have, we would have been able to have a much better system afterwards. And, right. But, and, the, but the high net worth people, I mean, they have their, their own greedy interests and their greedy interests are ahead of ours, the average American. And so what we have to do is hit, hit the wall. You know, that that's ultimately what's going to end up doing because they're not going to, they're not going to change it. it, it we got to hit the wall and have a political come up. It's in a come to Jesus moment in terms of as a country and, and reset things in a more um, in a manner that's, that's more equal in terms of uh, opportunity and such right now, things are so slanted and, uh, and, and corroded that I, I still, I still feel like we're, we're headed to uh, we're headed to a wall uh, in terms of the system has to change and it's going to be a big it's going to be a big change. Yeah, an incredible amount of frustration I think in society these days about these yep. these things. And, yep. and 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 I mean I think and I think you can feel that way without being without spouting socialism or communism. I think I think you can say that there's something wrong with this wealth divide and say it's it's monetary policy, it's fiscal policy, it's government. Um, and not necessarily that we're looking for, for uh, total equality or, or whatever. No, but no, no, no. But crony, crony capitalism has been running free and far for the last four decades, and it's gotten to worse where, where we are. And I just don't think that they're able to self-regulate. I think that this pack of people, if you add them up together and all the actions that are, that are going on are leading us to uh, a break in the system. And that's, that's I think, where we're headed. You know, uh, another thing I wanted to, to talk about in, in this same vein about precious metals, uh, a bit of a more contemporary topic just from the past couple months has been silver that, that people choose to have held for them, uh, allocated, unallocated, segregated accounts. There's a lot, there are dime a dozen. Some are certainly much higher quality than others out there. Um, silver and gold that are, and, and other metals that are held in warehouses, oftentimes offsite uh, all across the world. And, and the one that had really um, been in the news maybe more than any other in the past couple months was was the Perth Mint and uh, their their silver and, and gold accounts that they held on behalf of, of customers. And in fact, you know, their CEO, uh, Richard Hayes, recently went on Kitco News with uh, David Lynn to kind of talk about some of these rumors, these accusations that were thrown around because really what it stemmed from was was whatever term you want to use, a soft default, irregularities, whatever you want to call it, um, about customers essentially, you know, asking for for their metals that were uh, supposedly in their name that they that they owned through the Perth Mint, um, not not metals that they ordered silver and gold coins for for just plain delivery, but but silver and gold that they already owned and were asking to then take delivery of of you know months or years after they had originally bought it. Uh, difficulty in actually uh, delivering those metals in a timely manner. 
which which led a lot of people to speculate that the precious metals weren't there in the first place, that that this was a a, a some sort of a soft default um, by by the Perth Mint on these metals. And I'm sure steered many a customer away from from such a product in the future. Yeah, I wanted your thoughts on that. Uh, I, I don't want to uh, make it all about Perth Mint uh, sure. or, or or drag their name through the mud necessarily. As I said, though, these are there's, these are dime a dozen, and some are higher quality than others. Some are uh, very very plainly um, allocated, uh, segregated, um, you know, non-pool accounts. These are um, high quality. Uh, warehousing firms, and and then there's the others. I wanted your thoughts on all that. Yeah. So first and foremost, gold and silver bullion is one of the things that you can own outright without counterparty risk. Really, the only counterparty risk you have is someone stealing it from you outright. So you know, a lot of times when a retail investor comes into the space, they learn about this and they think, you know, I'll just take delivery of it, and that's smart up to a certain threshold. If you have too much in your home, then it's a little bit of a liability. And so as you get smarter about it, maybe you'll, you know, create a, a relationship with a segregated um, logistics, secure logistics firm like a Brinks or a Loomis. I personally use Loomis, um, Malcolm Matt, there's G4S. There's a whole bunch around the world that do this, that, that they don't trade any metals. They, all they do, they just have regular guys who are paid $15, $20 an hour who, who wear guns on their belts and they, they have a secure depository that's fully insured. And that's essentially if you're going to first, you'd have delivery in your own hand. And secondly, this type of uh, situation where you just have a direct account with them. No, no bullion dealer in between, I think, is the safest bet, um, because once you start it, once you start using middlemen, it becomes a little bit more complex in terms of counterparty risks and things that can happen. So in terms of the um, unallocated or the pool or any of these accounts, they're all set up for people who don't know anything about precious metals. And they're set up to say, hey. You can get gold and silver uh, exposure. Simply give us fiat currency, and then you know, look at the website, and it tells you how much your little account's worth. And then what's really going on behind the scenes is a whole bunch of who knows what. And and you know, one of the guys out there who's done a lot of good work on this lately is Robert Kainz of Gold Silver Pros. He's he's done some pretty some pretty decent accounting work with uh, another professional out of London. I forget the guy's name, but they've taken out all the. Uh, all the annual spreadsheets, for instance, the Perth Mint has the, you know, they publish uh, every year, they publish financial statements and they went through the financial statements and have gone through it last five, you know, five, 10 years and have come to terms with the fact that they think that the Perth Mint is short, uh, a lot of gold and a lot of silver and that they are going on to Kitco because obviously they're afraid of what's being said about them online and what, what, what's being alluded to. And so, the fact that, uh, you know, Kitco is going to have Perth Mint on and then not interview Robert, Rob, Rob Kainz and, and, and his auditor is uh, telling, you know, tells you that they don't want to ask those questions and they don't want to go down those holes in terms of, you know, discussing, you know, various facts and allegations that have been made. The, the bottom line is this is like when you go to buy bullion, you know, get it directly, if not directly, have it directly stored with the segregated secure logistics firm that you trust. And, you know, if you're going to use PSLV, that's fine. PSLV, I think, is a trustworthy fund. Uh, but you have to be careful of other derivatives like SLV, SIVR, GLD, IAU, or any of the COMEX derivatives. All that stuff is, you know, it's just layered upon layered, but it's not actually the real thing. It's not something that you own outright. You, you essentially are an unsecured creditor in that situation. And in bankruptcy proceedings, unsecured creditors typically get nothing or pennies on the dollar that they invested. Yeah, I think that's an important thing to understand is 
is uh, the the legalese that goes into a lot of these uh, um, agreements uh, with a lot of these these uh, firms that, that we're we're talking about. Uh, the regardless of even what they'll sometimes outright say, uh, the the holder of the account oftentimes is not the actual owner of the metal. That there's mm-hmm. that there's counterparty in between that, and and uh, and and that's something that I think is like you said, just not understood by a lot of, of maybe novice investors or investors that are 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 not you know knowledgeable about the, the space as a whole and some of the risks. Yeah. To be to be an unsecured creditor in a bankruptcy proceeding is is not a good place to be. You want to be a secured creditor meaning that you own the stuff outright and there was nobody else that had any counterparty liability on it. And so, like I said, I think first thing is to have it in hand. And then once you get to a certain threshold, that's, you know, that's too risky to have at home or in a place that you control. Secondly, you know, start, start doing the work on, you know, a segregated storage account. If you're a six figure, seven figure bullion owner. So in terms of these fractional, I mean, that's essentially what they are is a fractional reserve type of, of system. Um, you know what? What type of, of risk does uh, what type of risk and opportunities this pose for the for the precious metals sector going going forward? So, for example, we don't have to use the sure. as an example, but but they're a good one because they are are large and and, and reputable. Um, what happens? What happens if we have a default of one of these large uh, firms, uh, and, and it's essentially found that the metal is not there. The metal that people thought they owned is not there. Yeah. Um, let's say what happened a couple months ago actually pull, played out in that scenario. What, what type of ramifications would we see? So uh, there's a website that I have. There's a long trail list. There's a history of this happening in the precious metals industry back all the way in the 70s up till now. And there's various names that I could pull out of the hat, like Tolving, you know, is a bullion dealer that essentially fell behind. I think the guy was day trading gold and silver and made some wrong bets. And then all of a sudden, a lot of people lost a lot of money. Um, the website's called about.ag, about.ag. And on the top left, there's a section that's, uh, that's called fraud. And you go under it and under the fraud section, there's uh, companies and various ones like Bullion Direct, Elemental, NTR, Providence. Well, Providence uh, is, is fine, but NWT Mint, Tolving, there's various ones. But he does a he layout of history of bullion bankruptcy, fraud, government actions, et cetera. And it's a huge, long, long trail and list of different uh, different cases of different companies that have either done outright terrible frauds where they take the customer's money and don't deliver the product. Those guys usually flame out really quickly. The CFTC usually takes care of those guys. But there's other ones where they last for decades. And then all of a sudden, the dealer doesn't have what they what the customer thought they'd have. And they go into a bankruptcy proceeding. And again, if, in a bankruptcy proceeding, if you're an unsecured creditor, that's a problem. You're probably not going to get much back for what you put in. And so, yeah, there's a long litany of this, a long history. And most people don't talk about it in the precious metals industry because, you know, we'd like to give off the illusion that all precious metals dealers are honest and, and forthright. And that's just not true. Uh, it's just like anything in human existence. There are honest and forthright people. And then there's also crooked people as well. And it's an unregulated industry. Uh, once you get outside of the, when, when you're inside of the 28 day delivery time, the CFTC doesn't have jurisdiction on it. And so it's unregulated. So it's buyer beware. Do you do your own due diligence, find dealers that are trustworthy and that, uh, that won't pull fraud on you. And so it, it's uh, it's a game of due diligence and, and, and knowing how to, to pull counterparty risk out of the situation as best as you can. And I think what I just described prior about taking delivery directly 
maybe using PSLV as a swing trade uh, fund. That's not a bad idea as well. And then, you know, using segregated vault storage for your largest holdings is probably the most prudent of the three methods right now that you could use in terms of getting precious metals allocations without the risks that that the industry has has had, you know, for decades and decades, this has happened. And it's it's all documented on that website, I told you. Yeah, that's a, a you know, I feel like I've seen this list before, uh, maybe by somebody else, but then you're right, it is uh, pretty extensive. And, and I would add that, that it's not always the small, obscure um, dealers uh, uh, that that are involved in that, and he brought up the CFTC and, and their regulation, and and you and I both know that the, the truth of the matter is that the CFTC is oftentimes uh, negligent in their own um, uh, policing of of financial markets, and I don't think we should you know rule out the fact that you know one day one day maybe we'll see um, the COMEX uh, or even the LBMA abroad uh, added you know to that list of of um, of frauds, I guess. With, with well, the they've, they've all had scandals. The LVMA, like every other year, has a, a blood gold scandal. The Perth Mint had a blood gold scandal in 2019 where they were buying gold from Papua New Guinea, I believe. And mm. the guy who they were buying gold from was a murderer, I guess. That was the allegation. And and it was blood gold fields that he was running. And the Perth Mint got up in this scandal. And and you know what their first knee-jerk reaction was at the board meeting was to, was to deny and ignore it. And so, you know, to see them doing similar steps right now and the allegations that are happening with their uh, unallocated program, it's par for the course. Um, so, you know, we'll see where it goes, but uh, ultimately a lot of these associations and these, uh, these people who front as if they're in charge of the precious metals industry are just that they're just fronts. They don't really know what's going on. And if you look at like, you know, the refiners, the different blood gold refinery scandals we've had in the last few years, they were all LBMA approved. I mean, think about NTR metals and think about, uh, Republic metals. Um, all, a lot of the gold and silver that was coming through those those refineries was Amazon blood gold, essentially. You know, they, I mean, it, it's an it's an ugly trail of, of the way that that some of these countries can't police the Amazon because it's you know the Amazon. Let's be frank, it's the size of the lower forty eight states. It's bigger than that. So and it's covered in in huge trees. Like, how are you going to police that? Mm-hmm. And a lot of that area is narco traffic area. And the narco traffic and blood gold game are kind of hand in hand. And so what you have is this situation where it's 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 very, very ugly and dirty and impossible to traffic. And the LBMA Association affronting as if they they know where all this gold and silver is coming from. When the truth is, how could you? I mean, how really could you? It's very, very difficult to trace gold and silver. That's part of the strength of gold and silver is how private it is. And so just remember that when these people come out and talk, don't give them the benefit of the doubt. Scrutinize them always because their track record deserves the scrutiny. Yeah, absolutely. I think the one you brought up there, uh, is it Robert Keynes? Yep. And then, uh, you know, over on, um, over on, on Twitter, uh, uh, John Adams. And, um, there's another one that comes to mind that, uh, um, uh, um, something Mark for Arcadia economics. Yeah. Um, yep. Chris, <laughs> I'm forgetting. Chris, Chris Marcus. Yeah. Chris Marcus. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, really great work on, on kind of holding them to their word and, and mm-hmm. putting their feet to the fire, whatever you want to call it. Uh, James, is there anything else you kind of wanted to add here before we kind of wrap things up for the day? So the premiums I just saw yesterday on some of the 100-ounce bars are slightly lowering. I think I saw wholesale premiums for 100-ounce bars down to $1.90. Uh, and this is refined wholesale silver bars coming out of the United Kingdom. I think they're recycled silver bars. Uh, but the premiums are coming down slowly. Uh, they're not uh, – I, I don't expect them to come down 
you know, much further beyond, you know, that, that threshold that we're talking about now, dollar 90 for hundred ounce bars, pretty attractive. Uh, com, you know, if you think about even getting thousand ounce bars, it costs about a dollar 25 or so to get it into your door. So, uh, the premiums, I think, are going to stay gapped out because just the way that the industry has been set up, it's been set up. So there's only so many players who have direct access to these products. And then it moves down the retail chain to the retail customer. And in that process, there's a lot of price gouging and profit taking that's being that's being had. It's very similar to, like I said earlier in the in the discussion about the United States and the amount of uh, con- you know, consolidation in terms of the industries that we have choices in our products and buying. And I expect it'll be the same way. If we have silver run up to 30, 35 spot anytime soon, you'll see the premiums probably stay gapped because once we get beyond 30, you'll see a, a, you'll see a momentum come into silver. You'll see a lot of high net worth investors, I think, come in because they'll see that as the breakout point. And so once, once we clip 30 and start moving beyond, it can move quickly. And so it's just to be ready for that you know, to try and get positioned for that so you can take advantage and uh, be ready for the ride. Because once we get beyond 50, this is going to get really crazy. Um, and that, that's coming, I think, in the next few years. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think, you know, there, there's a time where we realized uh, sub $20 silver was was a thing of the past. I think uh, the premiums that we enjoyed for so many years there, uh, I mean, maybe a decade there from, from kind of 2000, uh, maybe a half decade there, from kind of 2000, maybe 13, uh, to, till maybe 2020, uh, th- that's, that's probably gonna be a thing of the past as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and especially when you look at percentage premiums, even, uh, obviously as the price goes up, the percentage premiums are going to stay elevated, uh, relative to, to where they were before, where you and, could get, you know, generics over, you know, one ounce rounds for, you know, less than a dollar, uh, over a spot. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's those, days, those days are gone. The consolidation in the industry happened during that starvation period. And that's why you mm-hmm. saw premiums go down. People were fighting over market share. And now, you know, the, there's been a consolidation in terms of refiners, mints, and bullion dealers. And they're taking advantage. And that's that's why I, I like my suggestion is don't wait too long to get positioned because, you know, beyond 30, like I said, there'll be a lot of momentum moving and silver could get gapping up pretty quick. Well, James, you know, like I said at the beginning, it's been, there's a lot that has changed since we, we last spoke and I don't know when we'll do this again, but, but I'm certainly hopeful that, that a lot more will have changed in this space between now and then, especially in terms of price. Um, I appreciate you coming on today and I, uh, and, and I, I hope we can speak again in the future. Sounds great. And thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks, James.